You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. I like to keep things short. Uh, I like to think realistically, and realistically, I cannot hold your attention for 55 minutes like Pastor Phil can. So let's just cut out the last half of the the sermon, and let's just make it an, an even 25 or 30, okay? That way we're all happy. You're already giggling. That's great. So Numbers chapter 17. Now, I know when you do a week, a chapter per week, you kind of get into this, this haze and you kind of fall back and you kind of lose sight of the big picture here and you, you realize that you don't really understand the context of this particular chapter to the whole story. I, I totally understand how that is. I'm probably way worse than you are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take two or three minutes here and I'm just going to review the whole book of Numbers for you. I want us to, to look back and see a huge snapshot of just the whole thing from beginning to ending. That's going to be the first few minutes. And can we have a little bit of fun here tonight? I did something a little unique. Pastor Phil's not here. When the cat's away, the mice will play. So I'm going to do things a little bit different. I decided with my, uh, my lesson tonight, I would sketch out a few of my own drawings of how, the, how I think the story goes. So... I'm the children's pastor here. I can do things like this and get away with it. So it'll be our little secret. Phil doesn't listen to the lessons anyway. So So the book of Numbers is massively, massively important to the rest of the Bible. And here's why. Because all of the prophets in the Old Testament and all of the apostles in the New Testament and even a lot of the Psalms, they constantly refer to this book, what's going on in this book right here. And they use it as an example Uh, for promises and for warnings and how we're supposed to be obedient to the Lord or else, you know, X, Y, Z. So, without this book under your belt, it's really difficult to understand a lot of the Bible. So let's make sure we understand the book of Numbers uh, pretty well. There's a couple of building block books in the Bible. One of them is Romans, of course, the Gospels. One of them is definitely the book of Numbers. So let's make sure we have uh, a good understanding here. All right, so here we go. Now, you can go ahead and laugh at some of these. I understand uh, how my drawing, my artwork is. However, if any of these end up in any publications, that is copyright infringement, and I will be, I will be very, very dissatisfied. Okay, so here you have on the left, at the beginning of the Bible, the first five books, you have the Israelites who are in bondage in Egypt, right? And eventually, 40-some-odd years later, they're going to end up in the Promised Land. Well, see that little red arrow? Right in the middle is the book of Numbers. Everything that happens between Egypt and the Promised Land is in the book of Numbers. The narrative of Numbers is basically just the people going through the wilderness. All right? Remember that picture. It's a work of art. Now, the reason it's called the book of Numbers is because they count themselves. It's really not that impressive. So they just count themselves. They do a census of the number of people who are in each of the 12 tribes. God also tells them how to set up their camp with the tabernacle in the center where God's presence is going to be. And not so ironically, it looks like a cross. Okay, If you'll remember to the very first uh, sermon on numbers that Pastor Phil did, he kind of mentioned this. However, I have artwork, so mine's better. So now we see that the presence of God, which as you can see the flames going up there, the presence of God in the form of fire and a cloud, they're actually going to lead the people through the wilderness. Now Moses is the one that God chose to lead the people. So the book of Numbers involves this man quite a bit. He's, he's pretty much part of every story, right? 
Now, as soon as God begins to lead his people to the promised land, the people begin to bellyache and moan about being super hungry, and they even wish to go back to Egypt. Even Moses' own family rises up against him because, of course, they blame poor leadership, who hasn't been there, right? So they get really close to the promised land, and Moses sends spies into the promised land. And they come back, and what do they see? Giants everywhere. Now this gets all the people all riled up because everyone is scared. And of course, they demand a new leader to, get this, lead them back into Egypt. They never change. God says, okay, you don't want to go into the promised land? You don't have to go. So he says, I'm going to let you wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. I'm going to wait until all of you die and let all of your children grow up. And then I'm going to take your precious children into the promised land. Now, after hearing this, everyone learns their lesson, right? No. Now it's the Levites who are the priests responsible. They are the priests responsible for the tabernacle in the middle that you saw. And now they rebel against Moses and his assistant Aaron. Now God deals with them justly. And that's where we are right now, but we'll come back to that. So the story continues, and the people continue to rebel. Then, towards the end of the book, we learn that everyone gets bitten by snakes. We hear about a talking donkey. All the adults die, and the kids grow up. And then at the very end of the book, they finally, finally, finally make it into the promised land. And of course, the sun is happy. It's the promised land, right? All right, so that, in a nutshell, is the book of Numbers. Now, are you going to be able to get that in your head? Can, can you remember that? Can you remember that? All right, now everyone go sign up for children's ministry. <laughs> Just teasing. All right, so let's focus back in the very middle of the book of Numbers. This is where the Levites are rebelling against Moses and Aaron. Last week, Pastor Phil showed us that the people who rebelled against Moses and Aaron, they were swallowed up by the earth, Then they were killed by a blaze of fire, and then some of them were killed by a huge plague, right? Like 15,000, 14,600 or something like that. I can't remember the number he used, all right? So basically, don't mess with God, right? Now, for everyone who is left in Israel, God is gracious, gracious, gracious enough to give them one more sign to show that the right leadership is, in fact, in place. This removes all doubt. And this is what we're going to read about today. So with that being said, now you may stand so we can read the word of God. Open up to Numbers chapter 17, verse 1. Since I like to keep things short, I was very grateful to open up this chapter and see that there were only 13 verses. So let's go ahead and just read through the whole thing. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and get 12 staffs from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes, Write the name of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name, for there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Place them in the tent of meeting in front of the Ark of the Covenant, where I meet you. The staff belonging to the man that I choose will sprout, and I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. So Moses spoke to the Israelites, And their leaders gave them 12 staffs, one for each leader of the ancestral tribes. And Aaron's staff was among them. So Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the covenant law. And the next day, Moses entered the tent and saw that Aaron's staff, which which represented the tribe of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded 
blossomed and produced almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites, and they looked at them, and each of the leaders took his own staff. The Lord said to Moses, Put back Aaron's staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord commanded. The Israelites said to Moses, We will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes near to the covenant or to the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? And with that, you may have a seat. I'll have you know that in light of Aaron's, bud, Aaron's rod budding, uh, a friend of mine suggested that I title the sermon, This Bud's For You, but I would never do such a thing. I just wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it. So this chapter is about God trying to instill a heart of trust uh, and dependence on him. That's why I'm actually calling this sermon the Declaration of Dependence. Not independence, where they get to do what they want, but Declaration of Dependence on the Lord. So how many of you remember the story of Zacchaeus? Right? He was a tax collector. He was also a wee little man. Everybody knows the song. So he heard about the teachings of Jesus and all the miracles of Jesus, and he heard Jesus was going to be coming through his hometown, and he wanted to know what this Jesus guy was all about. Well, of course, because he was a... The crowd blocked him. He couldn't see, so he ended up climbing up into a sycamore tree. Jesus comes by. Jesus sees him in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down. For I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house today. Nobody? Okay. Don't do that next time. Can you imagine how Zacchaeus must have felt? God, God himself was coming to his house. Now, I don't think Zacchaeus was expecting company. Because if you remember this story, everyone hated Zacchaeus. So no one was coming to his house, right? So he probably didn't make the bed. He didn't wash the dishes. He didn't do any of that. Imagine for a second that Jesus was coming to visit your home. The very presence of God, who is completely holy, is coming to your house. Do you behave differently? Do you dress differently? Do you ask Jesus to wait outside while you clear some of the stuff he might be ashamed of away? Yeah. Oh, we don't need this, we don't need that. In a bag, in a bag, in a bag. That's the way I would be, unless Tandy cleaned. God, from the very beginning, has desired to dwell among his creation. God wants more than anything for you to be in his presence. He wants more than anything for us to be, for him to be part of our daily life. The real question is, do you desire the presence of the Lord in your life? So God's goal in chapter 17 is to win the hearts of the people again and get them back to a place where they listen and love him. I'm going to say that again. God's goal in chapter 17 here is to get the people's hearts, grab hold of the hearts, get them back to the place where they trust God, where they listen to God, to God, and where they actually love God. Now, all the staff that were used in this story, they probably weren't useful in the way that, that we traditionally think they were. We, we think of this big, tall, six-foot, big, giant pole that they, you know, they use as a walking stick or something like that. I hate to break it to you, that's probably not what's going on here. We'll, we'll read in a minute that uh, Aaron's rod actually ends up in the Ark of the Covenant, which is, you know, a box about this big. So we're not talking about a six-foot staff here. 
I think the more technical term for what's going on here is a dead stick. Yeah, not so awesome, huh? So the fact that one of them blossomed, it, it really was a miracle. Not only, not, not only was no one able to say, oh, what? the reason it blossomed is because we just cut it yesterday. No one was able to say that, right? Because these were, in fact, dead sticks. So this proof miracle that God used actually reminded me of the time Elijah set up a, a healthy little competition between him and the prophets of Baal. Anybody remember this story? It's a fun little story. So they each build their own little altar. And they get two bulls, one on Elijah's altar, one on the, the altar of the prophets of Baal. And Elijah says, okay, well, if you think your God is so great, well, let's just prepare our altars, and we'll both pray really earnestly to our God. And the one who sends fire to burn the altar that's the one who is the real God. Now, does that something, sound like something you would do today? No, I don't think we'd have enough courage to do that. So the prophets of Baal, you know, they're, they're thrilled about this because finally they get a chance to prove that their God is the one true God. So they get their altar ready, and they begin to pray, Oh, Baal, whatever they say, Oh, Baal, please send fire. Show the world that you are the one true God. And of course, there is no answer. Now, Elijah even mocks them and says, why don't you pray louder? Maybe your God is daydreaming, or maybe he's using the bathroom. Exactly the way you would expect a prophet of God to behave, by the way. (laughs) So they can't get any fire, and it's Elijah's turn. And to just make it very, very clear that this has to be a miracle, Elijah changes the whole situation. He digs a little trench around the altar, and he has the prophets of Baal come and dump tons of water on it. Now, what happens to wet wood? Does it burn? No. So they come, they dump all the water on it. He says, okay, go refill them, bring them again, and dump them on there again. So they bring them a second time. They come, and they just drench it. The trough is, you know, getting full. And just to make sure they know it is a miracle from God, he says, go fill them up a third time, and come just drench this altar. And that's what they do. So this mountain of water, basically, and these full trenches are there. And he begins to pray, Lord, this is your opportunity to show everyone in our presence who the true God is. And of course, the Lord definitely answers his prayer, and he sends fire, and the entire thing is just burned up. All the waters evaporated, everything, right? So... The prophets of Baal immediately cried out, The Lord is the one true God! Because they knew this could not be anything except for a miracle. That right there is what the twelve staffs in this story represent. Something that could only be a miracle. Twelve pieces of dead wood thrown into a pile. None of them could possibly produce fruit, right? But that's exactly what happened. God then tells Moses to return all of the staffs except for Aaron's. It was to be kept as a remembrance. So often, God asked his people to do things as a remembrance. He had them dig wells. He had them stack stones on top of each other. He had them, you know, keep the manna that was used. He had them keep the Ten Commandments. And in now this case, uh, he had them keep Aaron's rod. Why does God do this? 
Well, I can tell you one thing. God doesn't do anything willy-nilly. There is a purpose behind everything he does. So why don't you do it? What's the purpose? Here's the answer. When you spend time thinking about past events, it stirs something up in you that can really only be accessed through thinking of that remembrance. I love my kids, sometimes even to an unhealthy level. They can be such an honor for me. I love my kids a lot. Tandy has this little nifty app. Some of you probably have it. And every day or every few days or once a week, I don't really know, it will basically send her, it'll say, on this day five years ago, you know, you posted this picture or this video or whatnot. And Tandy will send those to me. And, you know, on any other regular day, I can think of my kids like when they were a baby, but, you know, there isn't really, I mean, it's just a picture of a baby in my mind, right? But when she sends me this photo of Kate when she was, you know, in her baby bed or, or the one this week, it was, it was Kate, you know, leaning over and kissing little baby Ethan in the swimming pool where they were swimming. Man, it just does something to my heart. God had this in mind for his people. God wanted them to remember what he had done for them so that their hearts would be stirred and they would willingly cling to them. Just the way, when I, when I see those videos and I see that picture, man, I just want to eat my phone. It's something I don't really understand yet. I'm working through that. I just want to go home and I just want to pick up Kate. I just want to pick up Ethan. I just squeeze them. I'm just so thankful for them. Something happened through that remembrance that wasn't accessible through anything else. That is all God is really after in the end. He wants us to love him. He wants us to pursue him. He wants us to be with him because guess what? That's what we were created for. In the end, that's the best situation for everyone involved. I don't know why we don't just do it, our sinful hearts. Anytime I I get the opportunity to speak with a couple who who is really struggling with each other and really struggling uh, with their their feelings and their affections for each other, one of the things I always encourage them to do is to get away, get by themselves, and just spend time, put away the phones, put away book, everything, and just think about the very beginning of their relationship when they first met, when you got the little butterflies, when you're holding hands and you're just skipping through the field in slow motion. And when they begin to do that, what happens? It begins to stir their heart in a way that could not be stirred through anything else. It's a remembrance. And so what happens is all of these, all of these weird affections, all of these weird feelings that get so skewed through life, it brings them all back in together and helps us remember what was so great about, you know, meeting this person, getting, getting, to, know, getting to know this person, marrying this person, falling in love, Right? It always ends with me thinking, oh, that's why I spent my entire paycheck on flowers and perfume. Because why else would I do that, right? <laughs> so let me ask you something. What is the greatest and most powerful remembrance that we have in our lives? I'll give you a hint. It's the Word of God. It's the most powerful remembrance that we have. It never ceases to amaze me how quickly my heart can grow hard on a daily basis. And yet, going back to this remembrance right here, it it just performs a miracle for me. Meditating on who God is and the things that he has graciously done for me and for us does something very special for my heart. It softens me towards the Lord, and my obedience to him is greatly affected. Is that you right now? 
Are you struggling with the fact that, well, I used to be really close to the Lord, but, you know, things have happened, life happened, and it's been a while since I really felt that special feeling with the Lord, that, that very special closeness. Here's the secret. You go to the remembrance. For me, my obedience to the Lord is directly related to how much time I spend with this remembrance. So everyone knows the story of Daniel in the lion's den. The reason Daniel was thrown into the lion's den is because he broke the law. And how did he break the law? No one was supposed to pray to God, only to the king. Well, that wasn't his style. He would go three times a day to his room quietly. He wouldn't announce it. He wouldn't make a big deal about it. And he would pray. He would spend time praying to God. Well, that was against the law. So he got thrown into the lion's den. Now, it's easy to read that story and think, oh man, I wish I could be as holy as Daniel was. Oh, he was such a great man of God. I'd just give anything to be like him. I don't think Daniel would say the same thing. Here's what I think Daniel would say. Hey, the reason I felt like I needed to go several times in the day and spend time with the Lord is because my heart would grow hard so fast. I think Daniel would tell you that he needed to go and spend time with that remembrance as often as he could so that his heart and that his mind can stay in the right place. What a wonderful God we have to be able to go to him over and over and over and over, and he continues to welcome us with open arms. So we see the response of the people here at the end of the chapter after God performed this miracle, the budding miracle. The people went from rebelling... So now they're scared they're going to die just by being in his presence. They just got through witnessing in chapter 16, the previous chapter, what happened to Kor and all the, re- all the rebels. Remember God swallowed them up? They died by fire or they died by a plague. And all of this happened right next to the tabernacle. So the fact that they're standing near the tabernacle and they're kind of afraid of what's going to happen near the tabernacle, I think we know. Are we doomed to die? That's just them acknowledging that it's just a matter of time before they relapse and start murmuring again. The attitude change is exactly what the Lord was trying to produce. From being rebels to immediately knowing we might die in his presence. Just that little heart stir, it helped them understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of their own hearts. They knew, they now knew who was in charge. But it wasn't Moses, and it was not Aaron. The point of this was to remind them that it is God in charge. Now, this political season is upon us, and I, I really do believe it's our Christian duty to do every, everything we can to, to influence the elections. But if, if your candidate doesn't win, relax, relax. Are you less able to go into the presence of the Lord because your candidate didn't win? No way. No way. And I guarantee you, whoever whoever wins, whoever loses, the other party, you're going to see a bunch of chorus step out wanting to rebel against who was just voted in. I just hope the earth doesn't swallow them up. Unless they're on the other side, then I hope they do. (laughs) Teasing, of course. In America, 
it is really difficult for us to relate to these particular stories in the book of Numbers. I mean, they were going without food for a while, they are going without water for a while, and they were in the desert. We don't ever really experience that. Even the poorest people here in America, they really do live like kings compared to most people in the world. But the message to the Israelites in the desert and the message to us here in America is actually the same. Just trust God. God would not allow them to place their trust in anything else or anyone else while they were going through the wilderness. And guess what? He will not allow us in a time of good fortune to put our trust in someone else or something else. With this, I'm going to close. Let's, let's fast forward into the future here. This is what God tells the people through Moses before they enter into the promised land. He knows the wealth and the comfort that he's about to give them. And he knows very well how anti-God good fortunes can be. So it's worth a little mention. It's worth a little reminder here before they go in. This message could very easily be given to us as well. Moses says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied... When you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and, you, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never seen, or something your ancestors had never known. Just to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as it is today. I think the true test in our life is not through the hard times. Because our, our idea of hard times often just really isn't a hard time. When you are helpless and you can do nothing, that is oftentimes when it is easiest to go to the Lord. You have no other options. This is the battle where our heart exists. When our stomachs are full and we are prospering, it is very, very difficult to give credit where credit is due. It's very difficult to honestly sit down and give thanks for a meal. I know we go through the prayer, we have our memorized songs for the kids, we have our memorized prayers, but when is the last time you were just truly thankful and grateful for the meal that you have provided in front of you? In the book of Numbers, God is in the midst of taking the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years before providing them the land of plenty. The purpose of the wilderness was to get them to a place where they knew everything they had was from God. They didn't earn it. They didn't do it. They didn't build it. God did. 
coming to church, listening to a message, listening to the songs, all of these things are remembrances, precious church. When we come together, get your mind where it needs to be. Think about the good things that the Lord has done for you, and your heart will be stirred. If the only thing you get tonight is just a reminder that God loves you and he is in charge of your life, amen. That's why we're here. When our music team comes on in a minute, I want you to think of it that way. Think of it as a remembrance. Too often we get into routine, and well, we close with a song, so that's what we're going to do. But think of it as a remembrance tonight, okay? Let's pray. Lord, it is such a wonderful thing to be able to, to praise the same God that we read about in the Bible. Lord, you're the same God who who took your people and rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Lord, you were so patient with them in the wilderness. Lord, you took care of their children. You took care of generation after generation after generation. And Lord, that promise applies to us. Lord, help us to remember that you are in charge. You are in control of every even minute detail of our lives. Help us to trust you. Help us to have faith in you. And help us to truly, truly love spending time with you. All this we ask in your precious name. Amen.